If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. For the past two weeks, I've been telling you the stories of the street kids of Portland that fell prey to the power of the family, led by Grant Charbonneau and Greg Wilson. They had a hand in the killings of Hal Charbonneau, Misty Largo, and Leon Stanton. One of their murderous helpers was James Nelson. While Grant and Greg spent their time behind bars, James finished his, was released, and soon found himself on the streets yet again. Finally, he could fulfill his desire to be the leader of a group of kids— but he would rule with a literal iron fist. When a young girl with disabilities enters the scene, she struggles to follow the rules and soon meets consequences she never imagined and certainly didn't deserve. This is the conclusion of Street Kids and the Multnomah County Manson family. Jessica Kate Williams was dealt a difficult hand from the start of her short life. Born June 23, 1980, it was clear from early on that Jessica was struggling with cognitive disabilities. Her birth mother, who had already lost a daughter to the state after she was born with such severe brain damage she was actually sent to an institution, struggled with alcohol and drug use before and during her pregnancy while making a living as a sex worker. Placed in foster care at nine months old when her birth mother couldn't care for her, it was clear Jessica was far behind in her development. She was unable to crawl, roll, sit, or take a bottle. She simply screamed. Jessica was placed with Becky and her then-husband. They lived in Simi Valley, California, and had seven other children who had also come from abuse or had physical or mental disabilities. It was a long road for Jessica during those first few years. The screaming continued. At just three years old, a year before she would even begin to speak, Jessica started to run away from home. The first time was out of a window, before figuring out she could just leave out the front door. The family took extra measures to protect her. First, they nailed her window shut. Then Becky took to sleeping outside Jessica's bedroom door. What made things even harder was that Jessica didn't have the mental capacity to understand, well, most anything. But she especially struggled with understanding expectations and consequences— So even when mom Becky would reprimand her for running away or doing anything else naughty, Jessica simply didn't have the capacity to understand what she was in trouble for or how to avoid it in the future. Becky would later say Jessica's brain was like, quote, Swiss cheese. Eventually, Becky, her husband, and their brood of children made their way to Washington. 
As time went on, Jessica tried her best to echo the actions and behaviors of people around her, but she wasn't functioning. Sadly, around this time, Becky would lose her first husband to a drunk driver. She would eventually move on and remarry a man named Sam. Becky and Sam would be the only ones that believed and supported Jessica when she came to them with accusations that a neighbor had molested her. For everyone else, the troublemaker wasn't to be believed. Thankfully, Becky and Sam stood by Jessica and they pressed charges. Once they did, it turned out that there had been other victims in the neighborhood who were now being heard because Jessica spoke out. Looking for a fresh start, the family moved to North Carolina. Jessica thrived in the new setting, the land, the air, the horses. But then work had the family moving back to the Pacific Northwest, ending up in Gladstone, which is about 11 miles south of Portland. As Jessica came into her teen years, things didn't get easier. She had the most dangerous combination when it comes to cognitive issues. She presented much higher than she was. Her verbal ability was that of a 12-year-old, but she only had the cognitive skills of a 4-year-old. When it came to her independent thinking, she was at the level of a toddler. Her executive function skills, those that manage planning, attention, memory, instructions, and multitasking, were nearly non-existent. She was still expressing her frustrations about being misunderstood by tantruming. She had severe memory issues, and her parents were concerned about how gullible she could be. Her post-pubescent years weren't any kinder. As a girl who already stood out because of her behaviors, her physicality started to gain attention when she grew into a 6'2", 220-pound body. That, along with her curly brown hair and brown skin, had her sticking out in all the ways she didn't want to. While her peers were going to the mall for a cute new outfit, she was forced to special order clothes to fit her unusual size. As the other girls in school had dates to the school dances, Jessica was living a moment straight out of the movie Carrie, getting stood up after being tricked into thinking she was going to the winter formal with the most popular boy at school. This led to highs and lows when it came to how Jessica felt about her disabilities. When her feelings were hurt, she was frustrated. Other times, she didn't want to talk about it or even acknowledge any issues she had as she just wanted them to not exist. She was tired of being different. Religion brought her comfort. She was a devout church attendee, going to three different church services, volunteering at all of them. Jessica was still pushing limits. On her 18th birthday, she was now a legal adult and wanted to see what she could get away with. So she left her home in Gladstone with a friend. She then took a bus to somewhere. Becky and Sam were terrified. Their young girl was not only just a teenager, but had so many issues, they felt she was in danger simply by being out in the world alone. Becky and Sam called the police to report her running away, but there was nothing that could be done. Jessica was 18. There was nothing illegal about an adult leaving their house. Jessica eventually came home after simply staying the night at her friend's house, seeking a moment of independence. It took her five years, but Jessica was able to complete her high school education. She was feeling down with friends leaving for college or to go start their careers, So to help with Jessica's needs and desire for all things adulthood, she was given her own phone line and permitted to get a job. Permission is one thing, but finding a job as a person with any kind of disability or special need is incredibly difficult. Some places had faith in her and gave her opportunities, but only for seasonal or temporary work. She enjoyed her time working at a pet and later plant store, but after a few weeks, the jobs would come to an end. 
She was now the last of her siblings to find work. Who wouldn't feel frustrated? Jessica tried her best to get along, and soon she was 22 years old. She was focused on two goals, to get a job at the zoo and to be an independent adult. She was tenacious about her zoo dreams. She made five trips via multiple bus lines up to the zoo to apply for a job. Eventually, she was offered the part-time job of being a groundskeeper. Her work would consist of walking through the zoo and tending to any trash or sweeping up as needed. Her family was so excited for her. Not only had she set goals for herself, but she put in an effort to meet them. Going to the zoo a few days a week for about a month, Becky then asked Jessica for a pay stub as she had to do paperwork regarding her disability payments. Jessica tried to blow her off, but she soon broke down. Crying to her mother, she wept, I feel like a failure. My friends have apartments and jobs. I'm 22 and I don't have anything. The zoo job had never actually come to fruition. She had simply made it up, even leaving the house every few days to make it seem like she had a job to go to. Then came the holiday season of 2002. Jessica did, in fact, get an actual job, this time at the Ross Dress for Less in downtown Portland. Just as her other jobs had been, this one was part-time and seasonal. That didn't matter. She was happy to have purpose and to hang out with coworkers who also enjoyed her company. Soon after starting, her confidence was growing from the inside out. She was playing around with her new makeup and hairstyles before going to work in the big city. Besides earning her own money and making friends, Jessica loved that her job was in the center of the city. Pioneer Courthouse Square was just around the corner. The location let her explore her independence even more. It was the most beautiful time of year. The Christmas tree in the square was up and lit. Garlands and lights were strewn about. Store windows were all dressed up. Her mother wasn't as keen on the idea. While Jessica had been placed via job services assistance, Becky couldn't understand why the job had to be not only a 20-minute drive from home, but in the middle of a downtown area. It made her nervous. Soon, Jessica's path started to cross with some of the street kids. Be it that they were hanging out in the square while she had lunch or they ended up sharing a bus, she was happy to be making acquaintances. After a few interactions, Jessica thought she had made a real friend with one of the young men. Well, they had been friends until the boy presented a plan to Jessica. His plan consisted of having Jessica work a register, which I'm not even sure if that was part of her job description, and frankly, given how she's been described, I would be surprised if she would have been given the responsibility of a register. Regardless, the kid wanted her to be on register and then pretend to ring up the clothing that he was buying, and then he would just walk out with it for free. Well, this horrified Jessica. As soon as she got home, she told her mother about the thieves' plan, telling her how appalled she was and that she would no longer be associating with the boy because she was not going to tolerate that kind of behavior. Her mind was changed in a few days, though. She wasn't going to engage in stealing, but she didn't want to end her friendship. She started to spend her lunch with him and his friends in the square more frequently. Becky was more frustrated Jessica's job would be coming to an end after the holidays than Jessica was. Jessica was used to it by now, but Becky couldn't understand why it seemed fair that disabled people who were offered work were always the first to be cut, as if they wouldn't be affected by the loss as much as anyone else. Along came the new year and Jessica was out of work, but still found herself going into the city. With the street kids, she had found a group of friends that seemed to understand her, or at the very least, 
They weren't mean about her being in their company. So during the day, Jessica would, in essence, play the part of a street kid. The kids not only accepted Jessica for who she was, but for who she pretended to be. This gave her space to create the fantasy version of the life she always wished she had. Her character had been kicked out of her house by her mean parents. No one had ever given her a chance. No one ever knew just how smart she was. Knowing the real her or not, Jessica felt the kids and the family were becoming just that to her, a family. In fact, with all of Jessica's delays and outward differences, the kids really only noticed one part of her personality that was very different from the other kids. She had a near disdain for violence. If a fight or argument broke out, Jessica's childlike nature would come out, and she would remove herself from the situation. This delicate side made it clear to everyone that she was probably pretty new to the streets, if she had ever even lived on them to begin with. Another sign Jessica wasn't the tough street kid she claimed to be, she went as far as smoking cigarettes. But that was it. No serious drugs were ever used. She never carried any kind of weapon. What she loved about the street kid culture was what she had loved since she was a kid. The drama. She loved the interpersonal relationships within the family and the drama that was consistently unfolding. She had front row seats to the best daytime drama in town. Her parents worried about her every day. In an effort to keep her home and safe, they decided they would convert the garage into an apartment to give her even more of a feeling of independence. And as someone who grew up in a one-bathroom, three-bedroom home who was given both a garage room and an outside shed room, I can totally relate to that desire for independence, even when you aren't quite in the place to find it on your own. And having space like that can help. Jessica loved the idea of the garage apartment in essence, but she didn't like that the refurbishment was going to take time. So until the room was ready, perhaps as her own counter-motivation for her parents to get it done fast, she said she would still be spending her time downtown. Besides hanging out with her friends and even participating in panhandling, Jessica liked to get what she could from the community programs, which was another place she would spend the days with friends. She did need help, so it wasn't like this was a total misuse, but these were organizations that were there to help the kids that really were houseless and didn't have a family to go home to at night. No matter, she wanted a job and knew that the programs could help with that. The problem was, the program was for teenagers, and they required identification. Seeing as her ID would out her as a 22-year-old, she was unable to use the job assistance or to take any of the provided classes. It was at one of these programs Jessica met fellow street kid Adrian. Soon, the pair were an official couple. Well, not official in the eyes of her family at home. They weren't against her dating, but they had one rule. You bring a boy home to meet the family before you start a relationship. One could infer that being on the street had given Jessica that sense of independence that she had been so desperately craving for so long. Not only did she not bring Adrian home to meet her family, but when she was home, she barely talked about him. In fact, she barely talked about the family. But when she did, her actual family was quite alarmed. Panhandling? A secret boyfriend? A boyfriend that she claimed had been approved already by her other mom and dad? Things downtown were more concerning than her family expected. Her parents knew little of Jessica's other life. They didn't know she had been given the nickname Giggles because of her, well, giggling, and that the kids said she was, quote, the nicest person you could have met. 
But Jessica's differences, not so much the cognitive or physical ones, but lifestyle, had the family members taking issue with her. Here they were, surviving on the streets, fighting for every meal, following every rule so they had a place to sleep, even though it was still outside. And here she was, showing up off a bus to do cosplay of their forced lifestyle, and the kids weren't taking too kindly to it. I mean, it would be really offensive for someone to pretend to be part of this lifestyle. Yeah. It's like the best of both worlds for them. Like they get to go home and Mm -hmm. have a nice place to sleep and go to church and feel loved. And these kids have made this total lifestyle change where it's street life all the time. I mean, some of them have places they go home, but yeah. Or they're stuck in it. Like, oh, you get to go home to your loving family. Well, my family kicked me out. Yeah. And I'm fighting. I'm panhandling just to get a meal. And you can just go home whenever you want. Yeah, it's a mix of emotions, I imagine. And one of them would be jealousy and anger. Mm -hmm. and Not a good Not a good combo. There would be times she would stay at home for days on end and not bother going downtown. The kids didn't have that choice. Jessica was still heavily involved in her churches. The kids were desperate for community and support. Jessica started to put in an effort to fit in more by spending the night on the concrete with Adrian, but it wasn't for her. In addition to Jessica having loving parents and a home, she continued to struggle with rules. Just like when she was a child and couldn't be disciplined because she couldn't understand the idea of consequences, she wasn't bothered by the rules of this family either. This social setting had become a replacement for the high school experience she thought she should have had. There were people to engage with. She loved to flirt. She loved the drama. It was teenage theater, and she couldn't get enough. Her time downtown brought out a lively, outgoing side of Jessica. To add some excitement to her life, she toyed around with the idea of switching boyfriends when she felt like it. She would even do the unthinkable. She would tattle on fellow family members. To her, it was all part of the same dramatic games all the kids were playing. And because of how she presented, they didn't realize that she might not have fully understood what they were doing. After a short romance, Adrian and Jessica broke up. She quickly moved on to dating Jimmy, a.k.a. Neo, but this only caused more drama. Neo had been the son of Cassidy, a.k.a. Juliet, who was the mother of the family. Juliet knew of Jessica as she claimed Jessica had actually stolen a sweater from her while at one of the local agencies. There had even been an attempt to have Jessica beaten up for it. Bored, Jessica started telling the kids that Jimmy was violent and that she was afraid of him. They broke up, but not before he had already received death threats from another family member who didn't take kindly to him breaking the rule of being violent towards a girl. Jessica again moved on, this time to Nicholas. She wasn't having sex with any of these romantic partners, and she was still returning home at night. So not only did Jessica not have to tolerate those uncomfortable and dangerous conditions, but she was unaware the drama around her was growing. She thought she was at the helm of it all, and it was thrilling. And remember, this is a girl with a mental capacity of a 12-year-old. What 12-year-old wouldn't be enamored by a life of adulthood and spectacle? Part of what Jessica missed by not being around at night was some of the planning that took place, like how the kids came up with a new scheme. They would pose as sex workers to lure men. Then they would mug the men. If the men threatened to report anything, they would remind them that they were trying to buy sex from a teenager. Not to mention, they expected that many of the victims would be closeted, so no police report would ever be made. Jessica was a girl after my own heart who loved a good tattle. 
This had been proven to be beneficial to her. She had tattled as a young girl and caught a pedophile. Now as an adult, perhaps her tattling could keep her safe from the potential harms of the city. Unfortunately, she used the power of tattletelling and the reaction it got from the kids to her advantage. In early 2003, Jessica loudly proclaimed to anyone that would listen that her beau, Nicholas, had tried to talk her into exchanging money for sex. The disrespect of paying for sex was against the code. When confronted about it, Nicholas admitted that he had asked Jessica to have sex, but money was never part of the conversation. His side of the story didn't matter, and the next day an on-site order was given, meaning if anyone was to come in contact with him, he was to be beaten on-site, which happened that day in the park. Scared for his life, he gave Jessica some of his belongings to hold on to as the rumors had viciously evolved into him attempting to pay a 14-year-old for sex, a much worse offense. Jessica had heard the conversations about the tax Nicholas would be facing, hating violence, and perhaps, if she was able to, she comprehended her responsibility for what was happening. She first tried to beg the family members to not go through with it. Unsure of what the outcome would be, she removed herself from the situation and stayed home for three days. With the same energy and intensity of a decade prior, the family, now led by James Thantos, had their sights set on Nicholas. Finding him, they asked that he make his way to the square where the family could all meet up. He didn't want to risk his life by going, but his hiding didn't work. He was caught in a parking garage and endured a severe beating from top down, not just on his body, but throughout the building. After chasing him to the top of the structure, the family members that were present kicked him, hit him, and threw him into the walls. Trying to escape, they chased him down each floor. Catching up to him, they would grab him by the neck and throw his head into the wall. Surviving, the family members dragged the bloodied boy to march from the parking garage to the square. He was forced to apologize to the family before being permitted to run from the scene, which he did, straight to a phone at a convenience store. With a swollen lip, broken nose, and black eyes, he called for an ambulance. He refused to speak to the police about what caused his injuries. Instead, he hopped on a Greyhound bus bound for the Oregon coast. With one of her boyfriends out of the picture, Jessica went back to Jimmy. Sure, his relationship with her had already led to threats against him, and he saw the outcome of Nicholas and Jessica's relationship. Nevertheless, he was happy to be with her. Perhaps to celebrate, or maybe because she was coming more engrossed in the family, Jessica decided she would again stay the night downtown. She called her family and let them know she would be staying out, which only led to a heated conversation full of her parents warning her of the dangers and begging her to return home. She hung up, caring not that they were upset. On Wednesday, May 21st, Jessica broke up with Jimmy as he, quote, was lame. Like, lame personality? Yeah, that her reasoning was he was lame, which I did hear you in that. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like something why, I would have Why said. did you break up with him? Oh, he's lame. <laughs> I may have said that with one of them. <laughs> and remember, this is like uh, early-ish 2000s. Oh, yes. Or Common vernacular. Maybe. Yeah, oh, that was redundant. Maybe. Vernacular yeah. of the time. Lame uh, in Old English meant crippled or weak. So, yes, it is ableist and it says to stop using it. There you go. A heartbroken Jimmy told his romantic woes to his mother, Juliet, who already hated Jessica because of the whole sweatshirt thing. Now she was really pissed. The girl she hated hurt the boy she called her son. 
Again, Jessica being home at night would have her missing out on important conversations. Like how that night, after Jessica had stayed downtown, Juliet declared Jessica would need to pay a tax. Not just for breaking her dear Jimmy's heart, but for, well, everything. Making her case against Jessica, Juliet pointed out how she didn't abide by their rules. She was annoying and overly religious. She tattled. She wasn't beneficial to the group either. She was very clear about never wanting to be around violence or arguments, and she refused to carry a weapon. So it wasn't like she'd be protective of the family if shit went down. Unaware of how the family was speaking about her, Jessica returned to the square the next day. Joking around, she didn't realize she was being perceived as bothersome by everyone. She thought she was just playing around with her friends. After a day of panhandling, she decided, without bothering to upset her family with a phone call, that she would be staying the night at the camp. Thirteen kids went to the camp that night. Unlike Jessica, Jimmy knew how the family felt about her and he didn't want her to stay with him. When he realized she was staying, he asked her what the fuck she was doing there. The temperature of the camp quickly rose. While some tried to quell the situation, Jessica unknowingly aggravated things by responding to Jimmy with a Who left you in charge? Perhaps seeing an opportunity to oust her least favorite faux daughter, Juliet pulled Jessica to the side and interrogated her about the situation with Nicholas. That's the boy from the parking lot or parking garage, saying she was lying about what had happened. Before Jessica could explain more accusations, the family listened as Juliet claimed Jessica not only stole money from the family, but that she was ratting out their weed selling information to the cops. As always, there was no need for rebuttal or proof. The accusation was made. She was guilty as charged. Jessica's standing in the family, already flimsy, was decimated. Swarming around her, the 13 kids encircled Jessica. They were mad, and it was time for her to pay her tax. After forcing her to the middle of the circle, it was demanded she get on her knees, which she did. This was not easy for her to do. Because of Jessica's physical issues and overall size, being on her knees in the gravel had to have been excruciating. As she knelt in the circle, she was ordered to remain silent and still. If she broke either of those rules, she would be hit with a bat. James Nelson was one of the family members present, and now, under his rule, the Rambo games were back. Transforming into their characters, the kids started to change. One boy began to dance around erratically. Others were charged with being lookouts. One boy was left to handle the family's Rottweiler, Chronic, who was already getting worked up from all of the weird energy. Another, Carl, went full warriors and started clanging his bat against a metal pillar while singing the insane clown posse song, Boogie Woogie Woo. That is frightening. That's a frightening image you just painted. Yeah. Horrifying. That they're all just... That mob mentality is so scary. It's like straight out of... uh, What's that movie where you get the one to purge? The purge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously, someone listening to Christian rapping clowns doesn't mean they're bad or murderers. This was a teenager that was doing what he thought would be seen as the most intimidating. And while still on her knees, Jessica, who was wearing jeans and a t-shirt under a sweatshirt, was robbed. The kids took her wallet, jewelry, and phone. Juliet was made square by taking her sweatshirt. There was still no contact with Jessica. She was just in the center of the group, remaining silent. 
Wanting to torment her, the kids took a cigarette and held it to her lips, then pulled it away. This had the kids cracking up. What, what do you mean with the cigarette? Like she thought she was going to get a puff or? Or they were burning her? They didn't say. So mm. I don't know if they Leave were like. To the imagination. Yeah, I don't know if it was like, oh, here, we'll give you a cigarette and pulling it or just being in her space and kind of like, you know, when people are like almost touching you, but not quite. So yes, I've been on road trips with my sister when I was a kid. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Basically, that same kind of. Oh, probably. Yeah, they're all kids too, right? Or teenagers. Exactly. Yeah. Don't get yeah. Out of your yeah. Face. yeah. Touching, but not touching. Then a few of the males approached her. Same as the tax they had collected from another family member, they held her head and cut her hair off. Upset about Jessica's lies leading to Nicholas's beating, Juliet demanded she pay the same tax. So with her hands behind her back the girls all started beating on Jessica. They would alternate, as they had with Misty, taking turns hitting and slapping her. Perhaps falling to the side, or maybe she maintained her position, the slapping turned into Jessica getting kicked in the ribs almost two dozen times. Boyfriend Jimmy, father James, and the other men watched on. Juliet was so enraged, she started to go completely wild on Jessica, screaming, punching, kicking, she was like a wild animal, and she had to be pulled off of her. Juliet would then get her composure, calm down, before approaching Jessica again, only to become blind with rage and attack her before being pulled away again. There were several instances of this cycle. After Jessica stepped away, another girl approached her in the circle. She too let loose and between punching and kicking landed about 50 blows to Jessica's body. The next girl added three more kicks. And let's not forget... These were punk kids, so most were in boots, if not steel-toed ones. Some reports suggest that this was when James arrived on the scene, but multiple witnesses placed him there from the start and even claimed that he had told the girls to do the beating as they might be protected from anyone snitching that a man had beaten a woman. Who did arrive at the time were two more kids, one of which, Sarah, begged not to participate. James forced her to. Looking at James, Sarah knew that if she didn't engage in the beating, she would be next. So grabbing an iron-filled glove, she approached Jessica and asked her why she lied. Jessica simply told her it was because, quote, she was a stupid girl. Sarah argued back, telling Jessica she wasn't stupid, before apologizing and hitting her with the glove. The beating went on and on, and now the girls started to get tired. Someone then declared Jessica to be an ashtray. A girl stepped up and put her cigarette out on Jessica, which caught her remaining hair on fire. The fire was put out, but the cigarette burnings continued by other family members. A boy in the family used his turn to hold a lighter to some of her hair and an eyebrow, claiming that this was all being done in the name of honesty. Still upright on her knees, Jessica was then forced to put her hands out towards Juliet, who then held a lighter under one of her hands, moving back and forth, burning Jessica's palm. Now Jessica's arms, face, and back were covered in burns. The orifices of her head were bleeding. So much of her body was now swollen and broken. Yet through the hours of beating, burning, and degradation, Jessica followed their rule and had stayed nearly silent with the exception of involuntary moans and grunts. Maybe for one of the first times in her life, Jessica understood that she had broken the rules and that this was the consequence. And perhaps she thought or hoped it would all be over soon if she just did as they said. Even as the kids took a break, stories swirled within the camp. 
as a silent and desperate Jessica looked on as the rumor of her having spit at Juliet at some point started to spread, and that was the last straw. With fists and weapons, the kids and their parents found renewed energy and went back to beating on Jessica. One witness guessed the number of strikes possibly went as high as 400. Oh, my God. And how many people was it? 13. Well, between 13 and 15. I can't. It's I, it's hard to imagine somebody being able to be alive through that. Yeah. Well, and I think that really speaks to her mental understanding of the situation, you know, that it was the fear response and she just froze because it was like, OK, I think I'm in trouble. I don't really know if I am or what I did, but I'll just stay here because that's what they're telling me it's to like do. It's like a child. Very much so. Very much so. Juliet, a.k.a. Cassandra, had such hate for Jessica, she couldn't stay away. Over and over again, she was pulled off of her when she got too out of control. When her hands were hurting, she grabbed a belt and began whipping Jessica. Once away from her, Juliet would beg the others to let her use the baseball bat to just kill her, but they wouldn't let her. On one of the last occasions where Cassandra Juliet unleashed her fury on a somehow still-on-her-knees Jessica, she was pulled away and was in a blackout, or as described by some, a seizure-like state that led to her throwing up. Across the street from the camp and the torture that was taking place, there was a 7-Eleven. At 1 a.m., one of the girls from the family went inside and purchased a bottle of lighter fluid. At 1.25 a.m., two of the guys bought another. The attack had gone on for so long now that the parents, Juliet and James Thantos, were starting to become paranoid. They had taken the tax too far, and with Jessica having a caring family, a home, and a penchant for snitching, they knew they were in trouble. They wanted Jessica out of the camp and gave her the order to stand up. When she did, blood ran down her entire body. She was covered in it. Her face was so broken and disfigured, one witness compared it to that of the elephant man. As for what happened next, there are conflicting reports. Cassandra, Juliet, Jimmy, and Daniel, another kid, all claimed to have been given the order to kill Jessica. Carl, the kid who had been singing earlier, decided to join the group on their mission. As the three kids, Danielle, Carl, and Jimmy, walked with Jessica towards the steel bridge, another kid went back to the 7-Eleven to buy a bottle of water to be used in an attempt to clean away Jessica's blood from their camp. As the others cleaned, the four kids made their way to the footbridge on the bottom level of the steel bridge to get to the east side of the Willamette River. Somehow, through the pain, Jessica was able to walk on her own. She never argued, never begged, just did as she was told. Danielle, however, began to get scared about the entire situation and started to turn back. The guys convinced her to stay. Throughout all of this, no one thought about the cameras inside the 7-Eleven or on the bridge that captured everything. A decade prior, a young James Nelson, back when he was still Highlander, had gained infamy standing in the same place, the railroad tracks under the bridge, when he caught and bit into a live pigeon. And now, here were three of his kids, the Highlanders of his family, looking up to him as he had to XO and CO, completing a mission on his behalf. It wasn't that much different of a situation than the Manson family murders of 1969. He had finally made it to the top. If only he had been given that transfer to California. We'll be right back with the conclusion of this story after this short break. 
Walking near the Rose Garden, or as it's now called the Moda Center, which is the event space where the Blazers play, the trio approached a fence where they forced Jessica to climb, and she was somehow able to do so. Now they were behind a retaining wall on the backside of the Rose Garden. In yet another gravel area, Carl and Jimmy again forced Jessica to kneel. She complied. Those that knew her don't think that she was just going along with things to be compliant. When confused or overwhelmed, Jessica was known to freeze, and that was what they believed was happening here. Danielle went from wanting to back out to being the first to brandish a weapon, a switchblade. The former college student who was focused on helping and working with students with autism was now threatening the life of a girl with disabilities. Terrified, Jessica started to beg, saying, What are you doing? Please don't do this to me. Please don't kill me. Danielle comforted her. Don't worry, sweetheart. Don't worry. Jessica then looked at her three friends, her family. After they nearly beat her to death, she said, It's okay. I won't hold this against you. With eerie echoes of the murder of Leon, it was Jimmy, Jessica's one-time boyfriend, who would take the blade from Danielle. Jimmy looked at Jessica, apologized, then kissed her forehead. Walking behind her, he attempted to cut her throat, but the blade was too dull. Jimmy didn't have it in him to put the strength needed into doing the actual harm to Jessica. Carl, on the other hand, had no problem with it and was happy to be offered the knife. He started by kicking Jessica in the legs so that she would fall to the ground. Rolling onto her back, Carl placed his knee in her chest and held the knife to her throat. Unable to cut, he chose to stab her neck three to four times. As blood and air escaped the wounds, her voice gurgled, What are you doing? It was back to Danielle's turn. She pushed the knife into Jessica's throat, causing a rush of blood. Jimmy was feeling braver now that his friends had initiated the stabbing, and when he was handed the blade, he stabbed her twice in the throat. He then rolled her onto her stomach before stabbing her in the back twice. Then it was back to Carl. Again, as it had been with Misty, they were finding it much harder to kill Jessica than they had expected. She continued to make sounds. She was staying quiet, but her body was, in their words, gurgling, so he stabbed and stabbed. Taking a break, he went back to singing and dancing. Fearing that they were taking too long and they might get caught, and that Jessica might not die, they decided to put the gurgling to rest by rolling her onto her back. Then they took turns stomping the air out of her chest. After at least eight of those blows, Carl began jumping on top of Jessica's chest with both of his feet shouting, Why won't you die? His jumping continued not just on her lungs, but her head as well. Jimmy watched on as his girlfriend's eyelids started to split open. Teeth and bones were shattered. Finally, she was still, and she was quiet. They doused her with the recently purchased lighter fluid. Strangely, when they put a lighter to it, only some of her clothes were ablaze. That's when they realized her shirt was literally soaking wet with blood, and it wouldn't ignite. As they tried to come up with a new plan, there was another gasping breath. Jessica wasn't dead. The trio went back to jumping in an effort to put out the flames and to extinguish her life. Finally, they heard a death rattle of breath. 22-year-old Jessica Kate Williams was gone. That is absolutely horrendous. Yeah. I Again, it's the same thing. Like, How can you go from dating someone to willingly murdering them? How does it take the pressure of one person saying this has to happen to be able to do that? Yeah, it's mind-boggling and so sad. Yeah. 
And and now even if you regret it, like you live with that mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just the visuals of that and the yeah that was actions that was rough. of it. It's a this is yeah, it's one of the worst ones. I, I've I've carried Jessica with me for a couple months now working on this. I I think of her and Misty often because it's just. You can't even imagine it. A horrible way to go and so long, so long long. lived through that. And the fact that she couldn't even understand it, you know, or like how Misty was just like, let me go get a bus ticket. I'll be gone. Yeah. And and they couldn't stop themselves. This could have avoided. Not only could you have saved a life by letting them go, all those other people that have now become killers wouldn't have that on their conscience. Like this is. And, And it speaks so much too. I think to the power of wanting to feel loved mm. and the power of wanting to feel part of something. Yeah. You know, that these, be it because of fear, they they fear being next, so they feel like they have to do it or they just want to prove like, hey, you'll love me, right? Oh, Based yeah. on their own life experiences. It's like, and then this is all it takes, you know? Well, what you said about that girl begging not to do it and then knowing right. if I don't do it, I'll be the one that's getting mm-hmm. beat. Mm-hmm. And for Jessica, you know, they didn't realize that she at best, at her best moments was at about 12 years old. And that was basically the social aspect. Everything else was a child. And so to to be so angry with these rules, you know, these arbitrary things they've made up and then to not understand where it was coming from. And for her to not, she doesn't know why this is happening. She doesn't understand what led to this. And it's it's really horrible. Now that they were certain she was dead, they went back to lighting her on fire. This time, they grabbed a blanket that was nearby, laid it on top of her, doused it, and lit the blanket. This time, they didn't have any issues with the fire catching. They watched as the light reflected off the walls of surrounding buildings and pillars. The group returned to the camp as heroes. Carl even had an arrangement with a fellow street kid who had promised him sex upon his return after completing the murder. The following morning, May 23rd, a railroad worker discovered Jessica's body. An autopsy was performed and made it very clear this was homicide. There were no drugs or alcohol in Jessica's system. She had suffered severe head trauma. Her left forehead was split in four places. Two teeth were broken out. It hadn't been the stabbing that had killed her, but blunt force trauma that led to a hemorrhage in the brain or cerebral edema. Luckily, she was dead when they set her on fire, as there was no smoke in her lungs. As Becky sat at home, worrying, trying to understand her daughter's need for freedom, she read the newspaper. That's when she saw a small article about a mixed-race or Pacific Islander woman whose body had been found at the railroad tracks near the steel bridge. At that moment, she knew it was Jessica. Ugh, how heartbreaking. Yeah, when you're trying. And she wasn't a bad kid. They were just protective because they had a better understanding of the security risks she faced than she, she did. She didn't know the dangers yeah, that it's not like kids she, had. Yeah, it's not like she's like, screw you guys, I'm running away forever. It was like, no, I'm going to stay out and I'm going to be a little naughty, which isn't that naughty. Like, leaving home and staying at a friend's is basically what it was equivalent to. And and she just didn't know. Becky's intuition had her calling detectives, stating her concern that the woman was actually her daughter. When detectives spoke with her, she provided photos, but they were of no use. 
Jessica was so unrecognizable that identification based on her body would be impossible. Detectives returned to her house and fingerprinted Jessica's room. They were a match. Becky demanded to see her daughter. She didn't care about the condition of her body. She was shocked to see Jessica's body had been placed in a clear body bag because a traditional one wouldn't have worked due to the skin slippage and burns. As she looked over her daughter's remains, Becky saw that her skull was completely smashed in at the back. Besides fingerprints in the bedroom, detectives also found some of the belongings Nicholas had left for Jessica to take care of. He quickly became a person of interest. Soon, detectives were getting calls from other families who were clearing their names. Kind of a, hey, we know one of the street kids was killed, but it wasn't from us. I mean, that's the time people are going to start talking because they're not going to want to have to take the fall. Yeah, especially once it's like in the newspaper and you have a parent, you know. I still don't know anything about Misty's family. I I know where she ended up being buried and but th- like that's it, you know? And so that that's a harder case to solve. Like, you know, the police didn't even know when they were going after Grant. They didn't even know about Misty. That wasn't even part of it. And so luckily because Jessica had a family that was still in touch with her and knew that she was missing yeah like right away they were like oh this is her otherwise this could have never been solved or just sat on a shelf I mean think about how many um houseless people and street kids did go unsolved yeah still continue to yeah starting with Nicholas's bag police asked around and eventually found him he had come back to town and was quickly cleared exploring the area between the camps and the crime scene police realized that there were cameras on the bridge and ordered the tapes. When detectives did find kids that were willing to talk to them, they had more questions than answers when it came to what happened to Jessica. Everyone knew Giggles had been killed, but the reasoning varied. Stories that she was secretly a CO or a second-in-command of a gang of her own, or her murder was actually racially motivated, or maybe she had been involved in drugs. Finally, someone gave them a real answer. Jessica was naive. Being naive on the streets can be deadly. Just as James had done all those years before, Carl was quick to run his mouth about the deed he had done. He claimed to have stabbed Jessica 37 times, but that number varied depending on who was listening. He also claimed the thrill of the kill gave him an erection. Gross. Very. On the opposite end of the spectrum was Danielle. She was being crushed by the pressure. She had taken up the hobby of getting drunk out in the streets and then walking into traffic with the goal of getting hit. No one was willing to support her as they perceived her as being weak. The kids just laughed at her as she broke down. When the family gathered, they had a toast to celebrate before talking about what their stories would be. They had seen that police were asking around and knew the questions would be coming their way soon. They settled on two things. The last time anyone in the family saw Jessica was on May 11th, and the person they thought had been responsible was Nicholas as he had been in and out of town. Danielle might have been losing it, but at least she was trying to talk about it and was outwardly expressing her struggle. The rest of the family just turned more violent. Perhaps they felt empowered after handling their own business or just from not getting caught. Soon after the murder, they nearly killed a drug dealer that had been rumored to have been romantically linked to family members, once again eliciting a beating in a parking garage. They didn't let him run off as they had with Nicholas, though. Instead, they tried to throw him from the top of it. Thankfully, they were stopped by security. 
Jeez. Can you imagine being a security guard and walking up to that shit? Yeah. And they didn't say how many there were. I would imagine a couple, two or three at least. Uh, yeah. And then you're just like, hey, guys, could Ugh. you not throw that guy over? Minimal security training. Let's yeah. hope he was prepared up. for that. Yeah. Then a threatening spree. Spreading their own rumors about upcoming taxes of beatings or even killings, they wanted everyone around them to be fearful of their power and violence. Besides the rumors, they would threaten people directly. There was another beating, this time of a young man named Arthur. The beating came because he was spending time with a girl that the family was planning on killing. Carl the singer even killed one of the camp dogs. My God. This was all within five days of killing Jessica. On the 27th, Crystal, one of the many in the family, was out at Clackamas Town Center, a mall in the Clackamas area, with other kids and one of the kids' babies. Then she was busted for shoplifting. Because she had a baby with her, CPS became involved. Thank God. Yeah. They weren't concerned with the pregnancy she was carrying, just that she was watching a baby. Because of the legal interaction, she feared that there would be a tax for her to pay from the family. Just as what had been done to Misty and Jessica, a family member found her the next day and started to escort her towards the square to meet with the family and to learn her fate. For one moment, her escort stepped away. Knowing what the group was capable of, she made a run for it. Finding a payphone, she called the police and got their attention by saying that she knew information about the murder of Jessica Williams. Officers arrived, but she couldn't just leave with them. Pleading for them to save her life, they had to put her in handcuffs and place her in the back of the squad car to make it appear as though they had arrested her and not that she had broken the rules. Taken to the detectives handling the case, she spilled everything she knew from the night Jessica was killed. She took them to the camp location, but it had already been swept up by the city, causing a loss of almost all evidence. Detectives were able to recover a clump of what they assumed was Jessica's hair, Learning of the 7-Eleven purchases, they were able to obtain the CCTV tape. Young and pregnant, Crystal was placed in a foster home for protection. On May 29th, after watching the 7-Eleven security footage, detectives scoped out the square, hoping to match suspects to the images. They found the family was now camped out on the east side, close to the Burnside Bridge. On the 31st, detectives went by the camp. Cassandra slash Juliet was very polite, she talked about her life, the family dynamic of the group. As she spoke, officers looked around and noticed a baseball bat in one of Juliet's carts, and it appeared to have blood on it. Maybe it was the thrill of having the police on their turf while they all knew the secret of what they had done, but the rule of not talking to cops went out the window. James was the only one to take issue with the detective's presence. Everyone else delighted in talking to them, even taking pictures with them. Maybe it was just a nice change of pace to have someone ask them about their lives. As the conversations continued, one detective even complimented the group on such a clean camp. It didn't take long for James's wall to come down, and he too was soon showing his identification, taking photos with the cops. He even shared he had a murdered sister. Her name was Misty Largo. As the officers left, James asked about some good locations that they could go to set up camp. And I think that speaks to either his reality, maybe his perception of reality, or uh, I just don't know. Yeah. The narcissism, maybe, to bring that mm -hmm. up. I don't know. How dare you? Yeah. On June 2nd, James Nelson received official word that his request to serve his parole with his family in California was denied. 
Angered, he took his frustration out on the family that he was now stuck with. Threats weren't being made to outsiders, but inside the family. After the murder, more rules were being broken. James put out orders for sisters to tax sisters, but they were all friends. They didn't want to hurt each other. The family started to splinter, and soon individuals were seeking safety and shelter at youth groups and organizations. With the help of a subpoena, police were able to get a list of the real names of those who had gone to said establishments. With so many suspects and people wanted for questioning, police knew that they would have to be smart in how they approached talking to so many of the kids without word spreading and the killers, whoever they were, skipping town. On June 9th, James had an appointment with his parole officer. The PO was made aware of the investigation and was told to call the detectives when James arrived. I would have probably just had officers in the building knowing that he had an appointment, but, you know, okay, let's just risk a phone call. Oh, my God. Yeah. How risky. Yeah. And how was that guy supposed to do that? Be like, oh, hi, James. Hold on. I just have to make a call. Hello. Oh, God. My delivery is here. Like, <laughs> that just seemed so Unnecessary. risky. Just have one cop sitting in there. That just seemed, yeah. James arrived, the call was made, and he was arrested. He immediately asked for a lawyer. At the same time, dozens of officers went to the river. With photos and descriptions of the wanted kids, they stayed out for hours and even rolled into the next day before everyone was caught. Wow, that's impressive. Right? They handled that well. Yeah. After the interviews, a warrant was out for the arrests of all 13 family members. In August, Carl Richard Alsup, who was 18 at the time, was caught in Seattle during a traffic stop. He had been the only kid to hear about the arrests and make a run for it. Danielle Marie Cox and James Jimmy Aaron Stewart, both also 18, Cassie Cassandra Juliet Jean Hale was 20, and James David Nelson, 27, were all charged with murdering Jessica. Additional charges those and other family members faced were kidnapping, robbery, and assault. Once at the station, Carl opened up. He claimed James had threatened him at knife point, forcing him to kill Jessica. When no one bought that, he folded. Not only had he killed Jessica, but he had also beaten Nicholas, and he had assaulted a man in Eugene with a bat during a mugging just a few months earlier. During her interview, Danielle had two detectives talking with her. She couldn't help but cry as she described the horrible sounds that came from Jessica's body as she died. Confessing to killing Jessica, she started to become hysterical, saying, I can't take this back. It eats me up inside. As part of her confession, she promised that she hadn't wanted to hurt Jessica or have things go as far as they did. When the detectives pushed on, she still wouldn't rat out James as being the leader who gave the order. Ugh, rat him out. You're already in trouble. Uh, yeah, it can't get much worse. Jimmy was hangry. When he couldn't stop sobbing about how miserable he was on the street, Detectives got him some food, and he finally calmed down. He started to talk about what he knew. Cassandra claimed that while things were happening, she was having a seizure and was blacking out. She simply couldn't remember anything. But certainly she couldn't have had anything to do with it while dealing with her own medical <sighs> emergency. Lying twat. Yeah, except that every other street kid that the detectives spoke to said that she had been leading the beating. Finally, she gave up and confessed. Claiming it was due to how she was raised and without a tear to be found, she admitted to burning Jessica's hand, beating her, kicking her, and hitting her. 
which I, I get when you look at the long term effects and you try to understand like what got these kids to that point. But not when it's like, but you've done this thing. That's you know, not you can't fall on half that. my friends growing up had a really rough childhood right. where there was abuse. There's right. not enough money. They are murderers. Yeah. Becky and Sam had laid their daughter to rest and had to carry on, knowing their child had met a demise no one would wish on their worst enemy. As they watched the family get arrested, they started to get answers and threats. The district attorney publicly blamed taxpayers for allowing kids to run amok in the streets. Becky and Sam were simply painted as bad parents who either forced Jessica into the streets or hadn't cared enough to save her. There was never a discussion about how she was affected by fetal alcohol and how her parents had done everything in their power to protect her. The state blamed the agencies that worked with the kids. The agency blamed the city. The city blamed the parents. Jessica's parents blamed the killers. The killers' parents blamed themselves. And the killers blamed Jessica and the media for their perceived unfair portrayal of their lifestyle. Oh, my God. First of all, had they brought up the fetal alcohol, she would have been berated for that, too. Right. Like... Again, let's not blame the victims of the or the family of the victims. Right. It's like here's this foster family who adopted her and had Oh, she was adopted. Oh yeah, she was adopted. She was adopted. But I'm sure people missed that. I'm sure people thought like, oh, you let your fetal alcohol affected child, you know, even if that was brought up, they probably would have just assumed that they well, were the parents. It's like nobody wants to accept the blame. They're just pointing fingers. Yeah. Wow. When it was time for trials and sentencing, Crystal Elliott, who had been pregnant and called the murder into police, essentially solving it for them, had her baby in juvenile detention. She was released in 2008. Another Crystal, Crystal Grace, a.k.a. Jade, was given three and a half years. Crystal Ivy, who was Nick's, learned a hard lesson from her involvement. She wanted to rebuild what her life had been before the streets, and maybe she has since her release after three years in juvie in 2005. Steve Pierce, a.k.a. Gambit, served nearly six years, filing multiple motions. Thomas Schreiner, and I don't have his street name, was convicted separately of rape and committing a robbery in Eugene, among other assaults. He served just over seven years. Joshua Brown Leonon, a.k.a. Scooby, was given six years for multiple assaults. Two of those years were given based on his witnessing the attack on Jessica. Cassandra Hale, a.k.a. Juliet, or the mother of the family, took a plea deal starting a 19-year sentence in 2006. Danielle, Not enough. Not enough. Yeah. Danielle Cox, a.k.a. Shadow Cat, also took a deal, part of which entailed her ratting out the entire family. She did, which earned her a sentence of 25 years to life. She wasn't alone in not only taking responsibility for her actions, but for only feeling sorry that what happened to Jessica had to have happened. Not sorry that she had been the one to do it. The fact that the stabbings weren't what killed Jessica didn't help Danielle understand her part. She had only stabbed her, and since that wasn't what killed her, had she really taken part in a murder? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's impressive. I don't know that that's the word. The mental aerobics people can do to make things make sense for them. I know. Gymnastics? Yes. Oh, I like... <laughs> I followed though. But aerobic, you Mental know, like jazzercise. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, wow, the way you can twist it to say, oh, sure, I beat her and broke her bones. And... But she would have survived. Yeah, I all just... I did was stab like, her. Like, that's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just bananas. 
Carl pled guilty on September 12, 2005. Besides the murder of Jessica, he had admitted to the assault and robbery in Eugene, in all earning him a total of 41 years. He wept when he was told he wouldn't be eligible for parole until he was 58 years old. On his first day in prison, he was given six months in solitary confinement. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. For like an infraction? Um, I would guess it could it have also say, been protective. Yeah, it didn't oh, say specifically. Yeah. Yep. A lot of a lot of people get it just out of protection. So especially in this kind of gang mentality, and so many of them were going into prison. Yeah. I would imagine it was something like that. Yeah. Then there was Jimmy the boyfriend. At first he tried to fight the charges and even had an expert testify that since the cause of death was brain trauma, the injuries that led to her death had to have occurred or at least it couldn't be ruled out, that it happened during the beating in the circle. By the time he helped escort her across the bridge, she was basically a zombie. Eventually, he took a deal that allowed life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Finally, there was James Nelson, Highlander, Phantos, the father of the family who had worked his way up from the newbie who killed Leon to the leader who ordered the tortured death of Jessica. He requested his trial be moved to his Aryan homeland of the Netherlands that was literally laughably denied. Certain he would be let out on appeal and unable to have the trial where he wanted, he took a deal. He pled no contest and was given life without parole. When his history was brought up, he claimed he had killed Leon only because Leon had hit and raped his friend. He was sent to the Snake River Correctional Institution. But what's strange is I cannot find him in the Oregon inmate search. And well, I can't, they could have transferred him. I can't find any information about him being transferred or that he died. So I am curious what his situation is. I bet you one of our listeners will message us in a few days on Instagram because yeah. they've done that before. Yeah. You can find him. Yeah. So maybe he was moved because, you know, he had all those infractions when he was in jail before. So it's possible that they moved him somewhere else or quietly moved because of other issues. So yeah, he definitely could be in another state, which yeah. is, you know, that'll take us a while to find. Just two years after losing Jessica, Becky and Sam adopted two more special needs children at just six and two years old. The violence hasn't stopped among street kids. Soon after Jessica's death, another kid was also tortured and killed in the Park Rose area. It was July 2005 when Eric Gottschalk's body was found in the Sandy River by a fisherman. As the lowest member of the group, he had actually signed a contract forced upon him by the family's matriarch saying he would abide by the rules or face brutal consequences. It was signed in blood. Like oh Jessica. God. Are you serious? Yeah. They are really hardcore. If somebody was like, hey, you got to sign it in blood, I'd be like, you know, on That's not second happening. thought. I think it really is just that combination of maturity or lack thereof and like extreme role playing. Oh, yeah. I mean, give us makes you question LARPing and stuff. Yeah. Amplify that by all of these situations. And there you go. Yeah. Like Jessica, Eric had mental deficiencies that left him craving a community and friends. Being seen as the lowest-ranked member, Eric was forced to endure abuse from the other members. They would punch him with brass knuckles. He wasn't permitted to use the furniture in the apartment that the group shared. On one occasion, perhaps after breaking a rule, Eric was forced into a bathtub. Once inside, family members poured hot cooking grease onto his genitals. Oh my God! I don't know the time difference from that event to his death, 
But apparently, just like with Leon and Jessica, there were fears that Eric would report what had happened to him. Nicholas A. Thompson, who was 27, was the patriarch of the group, but wasn't so much a father as an enforcer. He had a long criminal history, including charges of sexual assault, and was struggling with unmanaged schizophrenia. He ruled over the group of 15 to 18-year-olds. After the Greece incident, he grew fearful Eric would squeal. Waiting until Eric was out camping, Nicholas and another family member, Raimundo Dominguez, found him and beat him before stabbing him in the neck and chest. His body was left off of a hiking trail. I'm not sure if it fell into the river and was found by the fishermen or if he was just spotted from the water. God. Now, question for you. Was this violence against like a low ranking member? Was this happening when you were new too? like were they hazed? I didn't see anything specific, but I can only imagine that there were that maybe those were the people that they started with if they were violent or something. It's just it's crazy to me. It's like there's always somebody that they have to put their negative attention on. Well, how do you keep a group together if you're always going to do that? Well, because you get people that are the controlling abusers and then you have the people who have been victims that are so often victimized again and and seen by those abusers as easy targets. And you get that dynamic together. God, but the level of just disgusting torture is so sad. Yeah. Raimundo Dominguez, another Scooby, was 35 years old at the time. After being tracked down hiding in a cellar in Maine, he was charged and sentenced to 25 years after he pled guilty to assault, kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit aggravated murder. Nicholas was sentenced to life in prison without parole, but due to his mental health, he was to start his sentence at the Oregon State Hospital with the plan of being moved to prison when he was deemed healthy enough to do so or at the end of 20 years, which does seem a little odd because if you spent 20 years in a mental health facility and you still aren't better worthy, (laughs) but they're like, oh, it's been 20 years off. You go to prison like that. Yeah, that is very odd. Yeah. uh, The cake's done now. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. And all they've known is a hospital for 20 years. Yeah. And they're not improved. So you put them with other people. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. They, they pay, they, they're, they're the cake. The person is the cake. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I got that metaphor. It does appear that he's been deemed healthy enough to be in prison as he's listed at the Oregon State Penitentiary. I wanted to tell this story because I think it's important to understand what people are facing in unfamiliar situations. While there are a lot of villains, this is in no way meant to villainize the homeless or street kid communities. First of all, I think Melissa's, Jessica's, and Eric's stories deserve to be told. They were dismissed in the news as just being transient women when they were lost youth. And maybe these stories will give you pause when you see those rapscallions on the street and you get all grumpy. Maybe they don't have safe homes to go to. Maybe the streets, even with all the dangers they present, are a better choice. When you aren't given the tools for peace and emotional and mental health management, options are limited. So let's not be so harsh in our judgments. Okay, so the controversy. While the book was incredibly helpful with hard-to-find details and even with everyone's names, it was easy for someone like me, who cannot remember names, to read. So I recommend it in that way. However, it does imply that the groups and organizations that are set up to help the kids are basically enabling violence or ignoring bigger issues. As an example, I want to read this letter to the editor submitted by Reverend Chuck Curie, who was referenced in the book. He lays out the issues pretty clearly. In the Portland Tribune interview and book excerpts, 
Renee Denfield, the author, asserts that most homeless youths are on the street by choice and that social service agencies only enable their lifestyles. Denfeld claims that the majority of youths I examined actually chose to be on the street. A lot of them came from very adequate, even very loving homes. Their parents often wanted them to come back. Outside In, Portland's best-known agency working with homeless youths, reports from their clients that 90% report some form of violence in their homes. 36% of girls report a history of childhood sexual abuse, with the first incident occurring at age 7. Further, most often youth believe they will better their lives when they go to the street, according to Outside In. These statistics simply do not support Denfeld's statements. Denfeld also claims that after Williams' murder, social service providers were more concerned with protecting the image of homeless youths than addressing the reality of street family violence. Statements like these are only meant to sell books. As a former outside-in staff member, our goal was to both hold kids accountable for their decisions and to provide them with the skills they need to escape life on the streets. In her book, Denfeld also blames me directly. Chuck Curie, an advocate who served on the board of the National Coalition for the Homeless, wrote an article titled, Jessica Williams Did Not Have to Die, which implied Jessica had been forced out on the streets by her family. The only way to truly bring justice to the death of Jessica Kate Williams would be to make sure no young person was forced onto the streets where she can be killed. The article Denfeld refers to was one I wrote in the seminary, published on the National Coalition for the Homeless website, a theological reflection on violence perpetrated against homeless people in the United States. At no time did I claim that Jessica Williams had been forced out on the street by her family. I put the blame for her death where it belonged, with her killers. Had Denfeld tried to contact me while writing her book, I would have been more than willing to talk with her. After reading the interview and book excerpts, it seems clear that facts would have gotten in the way of the story she wanted to tell. So that about sums it up. The author wasn't victim-blaming, but she was a bit generalized when it came to her feelings about the kids and their violent tendencies. So if you do read it, take it with a grain or five of salt. I reached out to several agencies in town hoping to talk about the real services they provide to the real kids that need it, but I didn't hear back from anyone. Regardless, I hope those of you listening maybe walk away with a different perspective of these kids. Not that they're violent or dangerous, but that they are kids who weren't given the tools necessary to manage life. So let's support those organizations so the kids can have more access to mental and physical health care, shelter, education, job opportunities, and creating safe spaces where no one feels like they have to lie to fit in. It's a tough one, and this certainly, I, I was not trying to share those details to be gratuitous or shocking, but to just understand the extreme links people go to mm-hmm. and that this guy really, I mean, how is that different than Manson? No, it's, you know? it's not. Like, and we see this throughout history. There are people that can have a, a crazy control over yeah. others, especially impressionable young people. Yeah. I just wanted to paint a little bit of a more broad picture to say it's not just people that run away from home and end up on the street or people that are forced out and they're just on the street and they just have their little tent and live their lives and and go about their day it's like truly it's a jungle out there and they're trying to survive and it's well do you stay on your own do you join this group to feel protected and if you do what will that mean for you you know what what are you buying into and uh 
it's just really horrifying. It's really, it's really scary. And just so many people lost as always for, for nothing, for no reason, for power, for control, for intimidation, just really, really sad. Have you guys ever been to the Ross in downtown? I sure have. How is it? Is it just, is it everything on the ground? <laughs> I have never actually gone in there. I've only walked by it. But I, you know, I've been to the Nordstrom Rack and it gets a little crazy. In yeah. There. Oh, I've been in that one downtown. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. There were some, some fierce shoppers in there. You got to get it quick and get in line. Like, like over scarves. They were like, it was. Scratching it was each other. Scary. Yeah. Who are you going to marry? We'll I'm going to the beach this weekend. I'll find someone at Chinook oh, no. Winds. I'll find an old man. Oh, with oh actually, um, I want to go to Chinook. My friend has an old man. Ew. I don't know if I'm more offended at you saying my friend or. <laughs> uh, yeah, it took me a minute to realize you were talking about. Okay, so you know how you have like a bottom line, like you would have to do this before I'd stop being your friend. Oh, uh-huh. mine, I think, would be you hooked up with. Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to understand, no. you know? Uh, 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 that's my bottom line for me. I don't like uh, diary style writing. I'm not into that. Diarrhea? Style? I mean, I'm talking about sexual experiences, people I'm mad at, poetry. I mean, it has it all. I don't think you need a fake account. Just no, no, the no, names. No. I need a fake account. <laughs> it is way too embarrassing. <laughs> You're going to disguise your voice? Yeah, they have those on the app now. Well, you should sound when like you're I like... I went to the party being, with yes. Mary. Exactly. I don't <laughs> want to say what voice I'm going to use, but those are built-in features now. Wow. I love features. Especially when they're built-in. Facial. <laughs> Product. <laughs> Facial. <laughs> Took me a minute. You're silly. She was annoying and overly religious. She tattled. She wasn't <laughs> beneficial to the group either. I'm she... sorry. Annoying and overly religious. That's definitely one of the boyfriends I had. <laughs> <laughs> touching me, touching you. Ooh, uh-huh. Ooh, that was an interesting key. <laughs> That's not the words. That's not it. It felt funny in my mouth. Put a little love in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hire her for Super Mario Brothers. I was seeing if I had that clip, but I just have the clip of Sodium Pentadol. Yeah, because we'll never know where it was. We will find it. We don't need to do that. And then we'll just put it on a loop. That's a lot of work for your birthday. Maybe she may end. Exactly. But what's really strange is how itchy my blurfus is. And uh, it, I, I... So funny. Somebody just used that meme at work the oh, other day. Oh, that's fun. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. 
If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>